This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Esau Macaulay, welcome to Viral Jesus. Well, there was a plot of land where the grave of the enslaved was. My mom went back and she bought that plot of land for $500. And so our family, like, we don't own the plantation. We own the graveyard. And so, like, those small moments of redemption. And you can see on some of the gravestones in where the enslaved were, one of them has Reverend Bone. That's my mom's maiden name. And it's like the earliest generation of my family were enslaved and newly liberated preachers. And so there's a sense in which a lot of those stories that began generations back are finding some resolution in my life and the lives of my sisters and brothers. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I hope you are having a wonderful week. I am enjoying reading your emails and messages and seeing you all share the devotional that we did together on Monday with your friends and family. I am loving this. I'm so glad that we decided to do this. Some of you have emailed me and asked if you can have the full transcript of these devotionals so that you can read them at Bible study or at your church group. Yes, Haley creates a transcript of it each week and you can just ask her for it. Email her at hello to Heather at gmail.com and she will send it to you. We have one of my favorite people ever on the show today. You know what? I should warn you. I am one of those people that says that about everyone. (laughs) I am one of those people that's like, I meet you one time. And then someone is like, do you know Sarah? And I am like, do I know Sarah? I love Sarah. I do that with people. So sometimes I may say stuff like that. But I want you to know when it comes to Esau, he is an actual friend of mine. He's just so smart and he's so wise and he's so grounded. And actually, we agree on a lot of stuff, which I think is always nice in a relationship, (laughs) right? When you just kind of see the world in the same way. But what do you think? What about when you don't agree on the same stuff? Can you be friends with someone who holds very different values or views from you? That's what Scarlett and I are going to talk about today on Safe Space. Scarlett is my best friend and co-blogger with I'm That Wife. Her and I 
disagree on a lot of stuff as, as far as like perspective goes. We're different. Um, she's racially Jewish and, you know, she, I think she's attended her synagogue in her city in Detroit. Um, she doesn't identify as a Christian. I am like an extreme Christian. I'm a creepy Christian. I know that about myself. I came out of the womb ready to talk to people about Jesus. So her and I see things differently. But I just think it's interesting that we've always been able to create a safe space in our relationship. And so before we get into the conversation with Esau, which may be a bit heavier, let's just have a lighter conversation with my bestie, Scarlett Longstreet. I wanted to talk to you today about can we be friends with somebody who has very different values than us? What do you think, Scarlett? Very different values from us. This is heavy. And this has been really heavy for me and you. And I think all of us in uh, the current political climate over the last Mm. eight or so years. So when we say values, I mean, that's layered. Are we talking about politics? Uh, I mean, for me, politics are values. So they're kind of hard to separate. And here's the thing, like obviously in our friendship, but actually for us, I would say we do have very similar values. We might disagree on points, but overall, I think you and I share the same values. We have different perspectives, but I, I, I wonder, like, do you think we can be friends with somebody who has a totally different value system of just so everybody understands without saying what side you are currently on, Scarlett, because that's not the point. Can a Democrat and a hardcore Republican be good friends today? Can they even be friends anymore in today's climate? I think that I can extend kindness and I can extend warmth and understanding and love to someone who is on a different end of the political spectrum than me. I don't want to be in an echo chamber. I don't want to surround myself with only perspectives that align with my own. But I don't feel safe. Oh, <laughs> Not okay. to be dramatic. I don't feel safe with people who want to strip me of bodily autonomy. I don't feel safe with people who support maybe political policies that actually harm other groups of people. So that... It, I've softened on this. That is a hard, I, I don't know. I have some hard lines on it, but um, I have lost friends over the last eight years or so. And that has been difficult. Yeah, you have. I have. Because I will say this about you, and this is where you and I differ. You are very vocal about the things that you believe in to the point where you are willing to get in an argument with somebody that is like a casual friend if they post something that you disagree with. And I would probably read it and just keep scrolling. But you feel like, no, this is, I have to say something. It's always going to come up for me. I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to talk about it. Um, I actually don't, this is a different thing, but like even for me with influencers, if they're not not everything. You don't have to comment on every social issue. You don't have to comment on every, right. you know, international dispute. But for me, I want to see where you're at and I want to see what you care about. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about it. I want you to talk about it. Even if we disagree on it, I have softened on it though. I do think that 
it's hard to hate people when you get to know them. It's hard to hate people. That's how it. That's how I feel. Because here's the thing for me. Like, while I would prefer to only have relationships with people who agree with me, because that's always nice. I think most of us have family members at some level who disagree with us. And it is not hard for me personally to continue loving my family, even if I totally disagree. And so in my thought process, I have had to mentally and cognitively and consciously say, if I wouldn't do this to like my aunt or my uncle, why am I doing it to another person who I also think is like a valuable human being. Like, it's okay to just disagree, try not to bring up that topic, but it's not going to make me feel like I can't be your friend. Now, I do agree with you where there are some times, depending on what the issue is, it's probably overdramatic, but I actually do feel unsafe. I, I know that feeling that you're talking about where I actually have a physiological response that is like, run, like you are not safe here. Um, but I, I have to talk back to that. For me personally. Get out your nervous systems. No. <laughs> danger. Danger afoot. No. Um, and here's the thing. We all think that our morals are the right set of morals. So. Exactly. There's that. And something I've learned is, I don't know, so, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, am I just trying to like kind of evangelize these people to my way of thinking. Cause I'll be like, well, I, I do need to be in relationship with people who think differently than me because how would they ever, how would they ever be exposed or, or so I'm like, oh, that's, I, I don't know if the motives are exactly <laughs> right there. Yeah. Let us know. What do you guys think? Are you able to maintain, especially in the climate? I feel like that it's been in it's, since 2016. I don't think we had conversations like this really before then. But since 2016, are you able to be, I'm talking not just like casual, but like friendship in real friendship with people who totally disagree with you, are you able to make a safe space for them? Let us know. It is at Scarlett Longstreet on Instagram, at Heather Thompson Day. With us, it will always be a safe space. Oh my goodness. I love Scarlett so much. Okay. Are you ready to hear from the man, the myth, the legend that is Esau McCauley? Remember, if you like this episode, make sure to share it with a friend. I love when you guys do that. I love when you tag me on your Instagram stories. It makes me so happy. Also, leave us a review. Rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I always tell people when they send me a comment about the show, I say, can you just copy and paste that and enter it as a review? That's how we get to raise our ranking and, and have the algorithm show us to other people. Esau McCauley is an author and associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. His writing and speaking focus on New Testament theology, African-American biblical interpretation, and Christian public theology. His latest book is a memoir, and it's called How Far to the Promised Land. It questions the narrative of exceptionalism that he and other Black survivors are conditioned to give when they quote unquote make it in America. His book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, won, I mean, I don't even know how many awards anymore, but I, I definitely know it won Christianity Today's Book of the Year. Esau is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. His writings have also appeared in places such as the Atlantic, Washington Post, and Christianity Today. Here is my conversation with Esau McCauley. 
Esau, so I want to tell you this. I had Caitlin Chess on the other day, and I'm going to have Karen Swallow Pryor on. And the reason I say this is because those two have been on the show twice. Okay. This is going to be our, I mean, you did a short cameo for us. Yes. Last season, right? But you yes. were you were my very first episode on Viral Jesus. Yes. Yes, we I am. We basically, we started this together. Yes. I mean, I feel like I'm like a regular. I'm not saying yeah. I'm a, I'm not a co-host, but it starts off as like, he's on every now and then. Then next, you know, I'm a co-host. Then it's like viral <laughs> Jesus with Heather Day. With, and with so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just saying this, I'm in no rush. I have a long-term plan. This is your third appearance. So I just want to let you know that you and Karen Swallow Pryor hold the most occurrences on viral Jesus. So you two share that. Wait, 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 wait. How many does she have so far? She's going to be on the season. This is going to be her third. No, currently, I will hold the title until she takes it from me. So right now, it is you until I think in like two weeks. don't worry about that. Don't try to take my moment. What I'm saying is (laughs) right now, I am your most regular guest. Karen, whatever she does, she might not show up. So you can't claim it before it happens. I am your most regular guest. (laughs) And we started this show together. So, Oh, my goodness. Okay. I want to read to you something you posted on the app formerly known as Twitter. It is now X. How do you feel about that, by the way? Are you are you sad about what's um, become of Twitter? Because we met on Twitter. I try not to process what's going on in Twitter because it's almost like, you know how you have certain things that you just don't want to morally examine because you don't want to deal with the implications of it? <laughs> it's like, I know Amazon is evil yes. or whatever, yes. but I still buy my books and I just don't, don't ask totally. about Amazon. So <laughs> don't ask about X because it might lead to me leaving the platform. <laughs> and I'm mostly gone at this point. I don't post as much as I, I used know. to. So if, as we age, the things that we once loved sometimes shift in ways that aren't healthy. Yeah. And it's hard because especially, you know, as authors, like for me, the app formerly known as Twitter yeah was super important to my community. And so I yeah. think I shifted off of Twitter pretty much like a year ago and it's been totally different. Yeah, it's really hard because, you know, I, I don't I don't know if people recognize this. So we don't get rich from doing the stuff that we do. I don't know. I don't know if, I don't right. know if you have vacation homes or whatever. But not yet. Unless y'all want to start donating who you're listening, you can help us. You, order, how <laughs> you can buy this book. Yeah, you can buy this book. But I think that a lot of us <laughs> right because we think that it might do some good in the world i mean one of the tricky things is how can i let people know about the things that i produce in a way that is organic and not manipulative and how do you build a trust with the community that could then if they feel so inclined purchase some of your writings so they find them helpful and so the more those places become difficult to inhabit the harder it is for us as writers to kind of share our work and that's what we do Mm -hmm. i mean all of us who write or create film or art we do it because we want to give it to people. And when things like Twitter become what it's becoming, it's harder for that community to develop. We need to have you on for a fourth time. In my yeah. January through May, I would love to have you on again. I really, this is a formal invitation because I would like to talk to another author about what the shift has been okay. like. Because for me, I've moved on to Instagram and I'm not like an Instagrammer. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Videos. I am thinking about posting my first bit. I've never posted like a one minute video with the words and all that. I'm like an analog Instagrammer. And so I still <laughs> post like still photos. So after literally I was going to do it 
Okay. But then I said I have to come and do this podcast. So you will see in the same <laughs> pink shirt, for those of you, if there's ever a video of this, you will see this same shirt on my first Instagram one minute video. And maybe you can grade it, Heather, to tell me how yeah. I do. So when you come back for the fourth appearance, we're going to talk yes. about how your time has been transitioning over to the video platform of Instagram. Yes. Okay. Here's what you put on the app formerly known as Twitter. You say this, we need to redefine success to center mm. faithfulness to our God-given vocations. Oh my goodness. Okay. I really connected with that because I've been mentally, that's like a question I've been asking myself. I'm, I'm obviously, I teach communication, so I always think about words. And I've been really thinking lately, what does success look like for me? And yeah. have I really defined that? And how do I know if I've reached it, if I haven't defined it? What does success look like for you? A lot of times I tweet out of the context of my anxiety. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I have a book coming out in a couple of... It's out. It's out. It's out. It's out. <laughs> By the time they get it, it'll be out. And one of the things that happens when you get ready to release a book, you start to worry, will people buy it? Yep. Will, will it be successful? And that anxiety can be really hard for a writer. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. There's this real fear that like, this is all going to crumble. And this is the moment, right? We convince <laughs> ourselves this is the moment where it all comes crumbling down. And then I said to myself before I tweeted it, like, why did I write anything? Why, why did I put pen to paper? And I said, well, honestly, I wrote to glorify God. Yeah. It may seem to be overly Christian, but it's just true. I just wrote to glorify God. And in some sense, hoping that the things that I write are useful to people. Mm. And I know it's very cheesy to say if one person is blessed by it, that's enough. And I want to say even that is kind of beyond what I can imagine. In the context of the anxiety around a book release, I said, I'm going to define success as faithfulness to the, the call to nothing that God gave me. And I think that God made me a writer. Mm. And so in so much as I'm faithful to that calling, even if nobody reads it, if nobody reads it, if every single person goes, this is horrible, I can say that I was as faithful as I could. And, and one of the reasons I think about that is Jeremiah and most of the prophets. Yeah. Most of the prophets were like, God says, go tell Israel to stop doing this stuff before they get into trouble. And a lot of the prophets went and told Israel to stop doing stuff. And the people didn't listen to the prophets. Yeah. I don't think that Jeremiah was a failure, even though Israel gets sent into exile. And so I feel like I want to get to that level of internal peace of saying, it's best as I can discern it. This is what God called me to do. And I pursued it. Maybe even you could think about someone who's a pastor who never has a huge church. Yeah. But if they they minister to 50 people faithfully, is that successful? I think so. And so just that, defining faithfulness, success through obedience and faithfulness is, was at least healthy for me in the context of book launches. And I just want to take a second and really challenge our listener right now to sit down and define what does success look like for you? Because I think for myself, I'll go through different seasons and I've never defined it. And so I don't feel like I've ever reached it. And so having a definition in mind is very helpful yeah. And exactly like Esau just said, it truly is about, I mean, if we're Christians, if we believe this thing, then yeah. I've been saying to God lately, please change my heart to just want what you want for me. Please change yes. my heart to just want the plans. Let my biggest plan be that I fulfilled yours. And how do we actually yeah. live that out? I have some responsibility. See, I'm bad at selling books. I'm not even going to let you switch to it yet. <laughs> Forget that. Let's keep talking about success. Yes. I think that, like, of course, like, we want to be able to take care of our families. We want our 
at least for me, my children and my okay, wife. Okay, wait, Isa, yeah. I just want you to know the one thing. So when I'm, I, I truly have this past week been thinking, what is success? And for me, it really is about my parents. Yeah. It is deeply connected to that. So, and I hope God's going to honor us on that, right? Yeah. And so like there is a level of material yeah. stability that we want in our lives. But what I had to say to myself is what is enough? Yeah. Like at what point, not everything that you could possibly imagine happening, what is enough? And I felt like if my children can be clothed and fed and, you know, be educated and we're like, I feel like we have enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm wealthy or rich, but there there is always more. And if you're chasing more, that's an unattainable goal. Yeah. But if I'm faithful to the calling that God gave me and I can provide for the people whom God has placed in my sphere of influence, then for me, that has to be a definition of success. And it's the only way that I can function without driving myself crazy. Now you can ask me a book question. Yeah. We just want to live this with integrity. Yeah. Your latest book that we want people to buy (laughs) is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival. Okay. Why did you title it? How far to the promised land? Where did the title come from? Did you title that or did the editor yes, do it? Yes, okay. yeah. No, that was me. That was me. Um, well, in order to understand the title, I got to tell you a little bit about the book. Please do. The book, The Originating Incident. And it's funny. In some ways, I've been writing this book since 2017. I just didn't know it. Okay. But in 2017, my father died mm-hmm. um, in a single car accident in California. My family's from the South in Alabama, but he was a truck driver and he was on his way back from California to Alabama. And we don't know what happened, but his car swerves off the road, goes from one overpass to the other, and he passes away. Oh, man. And um, he wasn't a part of my life growing up. He, he he left us when I was young. And when he was a part of our life, he was often abusive. He struggled with alcohol and drug addiction. And so when he was here, it was difficult. And when he was gone, it was difficult. Mm. And so when he died, it was this moment of this kind of unfinished story came to an abrupt conclusion. Mm-hmm. And my family, through conversation the next day, quickly, it became clear they wanted me to do the eulogy for my father. Mm-hmm. And if anyone knows anything about eulogies, in order to do the eulogy, you have to know something about the person whom you're eulogizing. <laughs> and I didn't know my father very well. We had never had any real conversations throughout wow. most of my childhood. And so that required me to sit down with my sisters and my brothers and my mom and his extended family to begin to learn a little bit about his story, about what led him to become the person that he was. And that ended up being a a deep dive into my family's life. For example, I found out that one of the last things that his father told him before his father passed away was that he was no good and he wasn't going to be anything. Mm. And the very land that he grew up on was eventually stolen from my family. And so what began as a research into the information for his eulogy became this deep dive into my family's history that spanned generations from Mm. my great-grandmother, who was a tenant farmer in the 1920s, all the way up through my own childhood. And what I began to discover in the course of doing that research is that all of us, uh, in my family, but I think all of us as human beings, it kind of changed how I saw the world. All of us are in different ways looking for something. We're trying to find this place where we're loved and we're cared for free of danger. And not everybody gets there, right? Not everybody gets to the promised land in that sense, this place Mm. of security and love and peace. But there is something about the struggle to find meaning and purpose 
that I found compelling that I want to share with the world. And so in the course of making sense of my father's life, which was very complicated, and finding the beauty in it, I learned how to find the beauty in difficult stories. Mm. Because a lot of the people who grew up in my neighborhood and the people who, around me and my family, some of them died in ways that aren't easy to process. And I wanted to give their stories not just cautionary tales, but the ability to find beauty in dark places. So How Far to the Promised Land speaks to the saga of my family trying to make a life in the American South. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. I'm personally, especially lately, really fascinated by the idea of God's view of what our lives look like, because he's watching this play out over generations, right? I often, when I feel overwhelmed by something, I'll think, I wonder if God is answering in my life a prayer that maybe couldn't have been answered yet in the life of my great, 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 great grandmother, and I get to see it fulfilled. Was there any moments for you where you like stood back and you saw God drawing this path that is with you, but you're a piece and then your kids are going to keep going? Like, what does that look like for you? You think supernaturally? Yeah, I think that there is a lot of stuff because one of the things when I was writing this book, I was working on it during the pandemic. And those of who few of you who know my stories that my wife is in the United States military Mm -hmm. and she was deployed during the pandemic. So I had the kids home for about nine months by myself during the height of the pandemic. And I'm working on this project. And one of the things that I found out in the course of researching the process is that my father, obviously I knew he had left us when we were children, but I also found out that his father had also left him Mm. and that there was two generations of men who, when things got difficult, Mm in the lives of their family, they abandoned them. Both me and my father were marked by that moment of abandonment. And I'm sitting there as I'm working on this book and I'm realizing, and my wife didn't abandon us. She got deployed by the military, but I was the one who was actually staying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I was heroic in some sense, but I was like, this is a real opportunity for me to create a different narrative for my family. It was an opportunity by staying to create a different context for my children. The other thing that happened is that I found out the land. My great-grandmother purchased a plot of land. She worked as a tenant farmer, and then she was a midwife, and she also cleaned houses. And she used that money to purchase some land in Huntsville, where we grew up. 
And through a variety of circumstances that I can't recount now, you have to read it in the book, that land is taken from her. Mm. So there was this moment in our family's history where we almost made it early on. Like my great grandmother had a plot of land and my father's raised on it and our family lost it. And when I talk about how far to the promised land, I was like, there's mm. there's always been these moments where it felt like my family might arrive at this place of safety and peace, but they didn't get there. But one of the things that I learned through that is that even though what she had was taken from her unjustly, there was something about the integrity with which she lived that was passed down through my family and wow. on to me. And now that I'm able in a different context, and she was not able to get education because they didn't educate Black women during Jim Crow. They just said, you're not worthy of learning. Wrongly said that. And so now when I think about my own opportunity to get education and I become a homeowner, there is a sense in which that story is that the injustice isn't undone through me becoming a homeowner, but it is a sense of her descendants got their own vine and victory. I won't tell you too much more about this, but my mother went back. I actually really enjoy this, just so you know. This part isn't in the book. My mother went back to the place, place where my ancestors were enslaved. The the plantation house still stands. Mm. And there's still a white family that lives there. Not the family that, that enslaved us, but that family sold it to another family. It's only one family removed from that. But there was a plot of land where the grave where of the enslaved was my mom went back and she bought that plot of land for $500. And so our family, like we don't own the plantation, we own the graveyard. And so like those small moments of redemption, and you can see on some of the gravestones in where the enslaved were, one of them has Reverend Bone. That's my mom's maiden name. And it's like the earliest generation of my family were enslaved and newly liberated preachers. And so there's a sense in which a lot of those stories that began generations back are finding some resolution in in my life and the lives of my sisters and brothers. I, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Talk to me about what you've learned about your family in particular, and then we can yeah. probably in my next question, we'll, we'll take it out more broadly about how you think this affects African-Americans in general as it comes to faith. But what did you learn about faith in your family? And I think I, I'll answer them both at the same okay. time. because. One of the things that happens, I don't want to downplay the spiritual struggles that we have in our generation, but one of the things that I've noticed, and I, and I challenge in my own life, is kind of what I call reflective crises. So that means when we look back over the long scope of African history in this country, and we say, look at slavery, look at Jim Crow, look at these things that happened to other Black people, and that the reading and the information about that causes us spiritual trauma. Mm. And we say, well, where was God during the midst of yeah. all of these things? And we're analyzing it from afar. And one of the things that impacted me is that you can see the women in my family's life, both during Jim Crow, during the civil rights movement, and during, during my childhood. They aren't simply reflecting upon these things in the abstract. My great-grandmother was there during Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And when she would see me, she would say to me, because my middle name is Daniel, old man Daniel, have you prayed three times today? Mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. But what I'm saying is her faith in the context of the suffering that I read about is a challenge to me. Mm-hmm. In some sense, it was arrogant of me to interpret her suffering as meaning that God could not be good 
when in the midst of that suffering, she said that God was good. Mm. And I think that we sometimes treat like the the faith of our grandparents or great-grandparents as like this Black nostalgia. Oh, that's how they used to believe back then, but we know better. Yeah. Because we read a couple of books. I said, well, maybe these people weren't as ignorant as we like to think of them as being. Mm. Maybe they had a hard-run faith that came from wrestling with God that I think is worthy of our allegiance. And so one of the things that came across in this narrative For me, I was challenged by the faith of my great-grandparents. So Black people in general are the most religious by many demographics. And we know that those numbers are changing when it comes to millennials and then even more so with Gen Z. I had Terry Wildman on last year. He did the first Native translation of the New Testament. And he was just talking about how difficult religion and faith is for Native people because of the trauma attached to it. What do you think it is about African-Americans in particular that we've been so grounded in faith for so long? Just curious, any idea what that is? Well, it's funny. The Bible talks about this. Okay. When Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and this is funny. People don't think about it. I think this is hilarious. When Paul is trying to talk to the people in Corinth, he said, not many of you are rich, not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful as the world describes power. Not many of you had all of this stuff. Basically, he said, y'all were the scrubs. Y'all, not in the sense of, of actual worth. I'm not talking about that. He's saying that you are the people that the society's tossed aside. Mm. And God chose you to put to shame those who are powerful. Mm. So the early church was not made up of these intellectual elites who have money and power. Because yeah. money and power gives you a false sense of confidence. But it was precisely the people who understood the value and the idea that God turns his eye towards the disinherited peoples of the world. Mm. One of the things you see in the Psalms, the question is, why is the psalmist crying to God for justice against his enemy? And a lot of times the enemy just stole his cow or something, right? It's because the psalmist has already gone to the court system Mm. and the court system has failed him. And he said, God, you are my help in the time of trouble. Like my enemies surrounded me and they hemmed me in. And in the name of God, I cut them off. You know why you had to call on God? Because he didn't have anybody else. Mm. And so it's not that I think that that sometimes, even in our own lives, it is precise when we get to the end of our own resources, we can recognize our need for God. Mm. And one of the things that's been glorious about the black church is that we never had through most of our history, economic, political, right. or social power. All we had was the power of God. Mm. And God showed himself faithful in that context. So that I don't think that African-Americans are fools of saying that the same God who was with us during um, slavery and who worked on our behalf for our liberation and during the civil rights movement is still with us today. How difficult was it for you in writing down some of the stories about your mother? Were you, was there yeah. a heavy weight there for you? Yeah, I think that for some people, Christianity works really well. At least it looks like it from the outside. Maybe they're faking it. And they're just kind of like, God is good in a way mm-hmm. that is like readily observable by material or social success. And I think that sometimes people can look at where we arrive and read back into that our past. And for me, my experiences and my mom's experiences with God came in the context of real difficulty Mm. and real trauma. And so it was hard. Everything that was recounted in the book that deals with my mom, she approved. We had conversations about. 
we talked through a lot of this. And so a lot of the work of the book was sitting down and talk with her about these incidents and, and, and speak with her about it. And so it was hard. But I also think that in some sense it was healing because there are certain incidents, traumas, things that happen in our lives. And no matter, they, they kind of return to us and they kind of cycle through our head. They kind of, they're like these kind of fixed pieces. Like, ah, oh, I remember, I wish I had said this. I wish I had done this. And I realized that we can't undo the past. We can't fix the thing. We can't undo the trauma, but we can write an ending to them. For example, when when um, Joseph finds himself in, at the end of his life and his brothers are there, Joseph does not say, the things that you all did were okay. He doesn't say that you guys were, were not scoundrels, but he can say that in the end, God was sovereign over these events and not the person who did these things to him. And so I don't want to say that God predestined the things that I suffered. That's not what I want to get at. But what I do want to say is that I can see now that the things that occurred Mm -hmm. did not destroy me, but God allowed me to endure and become become who I am in spite of them. And I think that that power Mm -hmm. to end those stories and to close those chapters in our lives can be healing. And I think that sometimes it's important as Christians, and this has to be done with discernment. It's not, you don't just tell all your business (laughs) because everything isn't in the book. But sometimes we have to show people our scars so they know when we say that God is a healer, Mm. we're not just speaking in cliches. I was comfortable being vulnerable because I knew that those incidents didn't destroy me. And they didn't destroy me. They didn't have to destroy other people who might have experienced similar things. Talk to me about your, and you've kind of described it, but your pushback on just sharing stories of Black exceptionalism. Why do you think that's so important? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are simple stories that exist in the world where a kid grows up in poverty, he or she overcomes all of the things, and then they make it to the middle class. And that's kind of an easy story to read. And it's an easy story to to process because we know what to do. We boo the racist and we cheer on the protagonist. And we kind of say, you know what? America puts black people through it, but it's the land of opportunity. Let me tell you something. I loathe hostile culture. It's simply not true that you can manifest whatever you want. I know plenty of people who wanted things really, really badly and worked really, really hard and they failed. I talk about this in the book. When I went to college, I thought that everybody went to college the same way that I went to college. First generation in my family, they they survived poverty. And so for them, college was this make or break opportunity to become whatever you wanted. I didn't realize that there was people who were legacy admissions, who got C's and D's in high school, but their parents could pay $30,000 or $40,000 in tuition until they could just go to college. And I'm not mad at that. But what I recognized is other people have space to find themselves. Mm. And for me, justice wasn't a few exceptional Black people making it, but it was room for Black people to be ordinary. And we needed more ordinary successful Black people, not just extraordinary ones. And so I wanted to challenge this narrative to say that the only stories that matter are the stories of success, because sometimes the people who break under the pressure of what America does to Black people are also instructed for what America is. So America isn't just a country that produces exceptional Black people. America is also the country that through its structures and systems mm-hmm. smash poor Black and white people underfoot. 
And I wanted to highlight some of those stories as well, because it's important because both of those reality are America. And the question I really wanted to, to, to put to people is, are we comfortable in an America that does this to so many African-Americans? What do you say to somebody right now who's listening and is feeling like they're going to die in the desert, that they'll never the promised yeah. land seems very, very far. And they are questioning right now if God is good. What do you yeah. say to them yeah. as they're in the desert? So it's funny because I wanted to, when I first wrote a book, you know, you never you can control what a book's going to do. When I envisioned the title of the book and I was working on it, I thought it was going to conclude that there is no promised land here. They were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That was going to be like the plot twist that I had in mind. But books mm. take on their own um, life. It ended a different way. What I was trying to get at in the book is it doesn't matter how far you make it towards this American ideal of middle-class economic success as it relates to the value of your life. What I want to say is that in every life, the struggle to find meaning and purpose in God, there's a certain hard-won beauty there. That, that no matter where you are, like my father dies in California, far from everyone he knows, and the relationships that he had with his family was never completely restored to what they could have been. He didn't know my children very well, met them twice. But towards the end of his life, there is the beginning of a turning that isn't completed. And I found that turn or that attempted turn mm. beautiful. And I think that if we define success as achieving some kind of status in society, then too many of our lives will be seen as tragedies. Mm. But I believe that a life lit and even tragedies rooted in injustice. But I believe that the attempt to, to live with dignity has its own beauty. And I tried to show some beauty in stories that other people often push to the side. Esau McCauley is the author of How Far to the Promised Land. You can get this book wherever books are sold. Esau, our show is called Viral Jesus. I ask everybody at the end, what do you think it means to be a Christian when you are online? I think it means there's this song by um, Chance the Rapper, or there's a, a lyric by Chance the Rapper that I think about all of the time. And he just said, I talk to God in public. And that's what I think that I do hmm. as someone who's online. I just speak to God in public. That means there's no facade. Um, obviously, there's discernment, but there's no facade. And I try to be myself online. And hopefully, in the process of being my, myself, I reflect something of the person who who made and saved and redeemed me. Esau McCauley, author of How Far to the Promised Land. You can pause this episode right now and pick it up. Esau, thank you so much for joining us. One second, one second. Is your latest book, is it I'll See You Tomorrow? Or you have one second? It's I'll See You Tomorrow. Okay, then you can order that one too. Y'all, if you've not gotten <laughs> I'll See You Tomorrow, uh, I will do that one. Thanks, Esau. <laughs> You're welcome. So what did we learn from our conversation with Esau McCauley? Number one, Esau says he defines success as the call to faithfulness to the message that God gave him. 
I am a big believer in defining the term that you are letting impact your life. So if right now you are saying, I feel like a failure, I want to challenge you on that. How can you really know if you haven't sat down and actually defined what success is or what it looks like? Write it down. What does success look like for you in the area you are wanting to see success in? You need to be specific because I think sometimes we say, well, I'm failing and we haven't even defined what success is. What if success is just being faithful in whatever situation you are in? Number two, Esau says that all of us are looking for the promised land. All of us are looking for a land of security and safety that is free of danger. I know I am. And that journey to that land is often filled with difficulty. And it is important to tell that story too. There is beauty in the humanity of that road, the road of difficulty. Number three, some of Esau's family members died in really dark ways. How Far to the Promised Land is about him making sense of the saga of his family's story. And what I think is really important about that is that you also have a family history that you may or may not be aware of, but God is aware of. I talked about this on last week's devotional. You are not an isolated individual, and it's very important to remember that. You are a part of a complex history that is still unfolding. There are prayers and stories and successes and failures that have come long before you. Being human is about being grafted into this massive narrative that is so much bigger than any of us. How is your life right now advancing the story of your family's history? How is your relationship to God confirming or maybe it's changing a trajectory in your family? God sees not just the singular experience, but the vastness of your story as it unfolds from generation to generation. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, I sit down with my girl, Karen Swallow Pryor. And don't forget on Monday for the rest of 2023, I'll share a little devotional with you. It will be under 10 minutes so you can listen while you go to work or drop the kids at school. My hope is it will help you face your week in faith. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.